And now a message from our sponsor. Hey everybody, it's Bootleg Captain, Captain Bootlegs here. Yeah. If you're like me, I bet you're enjoying this Toys, Toys on, on Tap, Tap podcast. Yeah, I am enjoying it, it's very nice. But did you know you can enjoy it more just by joining that Patreon? Oh, I did not know that. There are so many cool perks available on the Patreon for you. There's and also and Wow, that's really a lot of stuff if you ask Bootleg Captain. Captain I don't bootleg. understand. There were noises I couldn't hear with the person. So join today to support Toys on Tap podcast and Bootleg Art Toys. But if you're not in a position to join the Patreon, head on over to Apple iTunes and review and subscribe. That helps out the channel as well. Okay, I'll go rate it, I guess. And remember, listen to Toys, Toys on, on Tap. Captain Bootleg, the bootleg captain sent you. Why does he keep referring to himself in the third Can person? I stop with the stupid voice now? I'm not sure why you made me want to sound like a pirate. Oh, so that was a fake voice. Oh, yucko! I didn't realize it was just pretend voice. Oh, okay. I'm excited about this because I thought it would be the one piece that I'd be able to give the bootleg scene the most, an autobiography of you. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, as I recall, you proposed five episodes. Yeah, interspersed amongst, like, we'll let yours drop throughout all the interviews. Why so many? I think um, I liked the decade split up. That was more most enticing to me because I think you have the ability. If you want to make it shorter, I'm more than happy to. No, no, no. I'm more. I'm happy to talk. I mean, to be yeah. honest with you, I'm kind of flattered that you think I'm interesting enough to talk about myself for five fucking hours. Well, I think what is crazy. So I've seen you on lives. We've talked on the last episode that you were on, and we've talked about. Um, some of the stuff that you've been going through, you're like, it's almost like a reinvention almost, or like a coming up from the ashes type situation that we've talked about. Um, and so I think that because of that, because of your toy career, because we haven't heard much about you as a child in many interviews, I think all of those things led me to just say, let's give you as many episodes as I think this could work. Okay. I mean, I can, I can do it. And I like, you know, I like breaking it up, you know, by a sort of time period and or, you know, yeah, category. Um, just you, if I don't know if you know, do you have in front of you or do you remember what I you I sent you like five sort yep. of topics? Can you just remind me what those were? Yeah, the first one, the golden age of Star Wars. Number two, sex, drugs, and action figures. Three, super villainy and bootleg toys. Four, TV superstar and toy lord. Five, Rise, Fall, and Resurrection. Okay, well, we're still working on the fucking Resurrection <laughs> part. But, um, you know, uh, but yeah, I, I, okay, I can, I can work with that. And I guess this being the first one, we'll just talk about, you know, the, ear, the early days. Yeah, which I'm excited for. This is less of an interview for those that are listening. Um, it's going to be more of storytelling with intermittent questions that I'm going to have obviously, because I'm interested in the beginnings of you as an interesting person. Okay. So how to begin? Should I just... Early family. Just... Let's talk about them. Okay. Okay. So, all right. I'm going to say that I would not exist if it were not for comic books. My parents met through comic books. Both my parents were children in the early 1940s and this is before television and this was and 
My mother lived in Brooklyn. She's the descendant of Italian immigrants who came to New York City uh, at the turn of the 20th century and lived on Baxter Street in Little Italy, which is not far from where I live right now. And her parents moved to Borough Park, Brooklyn after they got married. And she was an avid reader of EC Comics, you know, Vault of Horror and all that shit. Yeah. And I guess back in the day, they had what they called pen pals, you know, where you would just like make, make find a friend that lived somewhere far away and you would exchange letters. Like Charlie Brown, remember he had his pencil pal? Oh, yeah, yeah. Was a riff on that. It was like, this is something kids did before the internet and television, anything they would you know, they would have, they would write letters and exchange letters with kids all over the world. And for whatever reason, my, my mother was some sort of Anglophile, you know, she was just like a little Italian girl growing up in Brooklyn, you know, with, you know, surrounded by guineas and, you know, working class people. And my father lived, was, lived, was from London. And I guess she was looking through these directories of kids addresses that she could write to. And she saw that there was this guy named Francis Phillips who lived in London. And so she wrote to him and they had an ongoing exchange for a, a good chunk of their childhood. And then I guess they became teenagers. They got a little older and they, they fell out of contact. And then my father, you know, all my family is, are working class people. My father didn't finish high school he, he he they pulled him out of high school he had a, he went to the army for a couple of years and then he got out and he was going set to work in a tool and die shop he was this is all my manualism comes from my father you know he was he's an engineer and he's a you know he's always been very good with his hands and he was going to go work in a tool and die shop and he didn't want to do that. He didn't mm -hmm. want to stay in, in, in London. There was no opportunities for somebody like him. He didn't want to just be like a, you know, like a grunt for the rest of his life. So he beat Cheeks and he moved to Toronto, Canada. Yeah. And he didn't know anybody in the entirety of North America except my mother, Rosemary Continelli. So he resumed correspondence with her, his old pen pal. And then he started driving down to Brooklyn on the weekends to hang out with her. And she wanted to get the fuck out of her parents' house. She's, this is an Italian girl mm -hmm. in the fifties. And you don't move out of your parents' house unless like you're getting married. Yeah. Right. And my mom's gay. Mm. So my mom was having this long-term love affair with a with a famous uh, Broadway actress named Gwen Verdon. That's where that's where that's where her interests lie. But she met my father, and they got along pretty well as friends. And she saw him as sort of the opportunity, yeah, to to get out. So she married him, and he wanted to move to Long Island and have a. Uh, an all-American life, you know, yeah. house, picket fence, a, a wife that stayed home and cooked and cleaned, and while well, he would go out and make money. And he was working as an electrical engineer at the time. And she was like, fuck that. She wanted to be a bohemian. And she railroaded him, like in everything, to move to Greenwich Village to go, to go, you know, live around the beatniks and the, the jazz musicians and the artists. So they moved to a little apartment on Christopher Street. And 
I guess it wasn't like the most ideal marriage because my mother had no interest in being married. You know, they got along fine as friends, but there was no real romance there. And I guess my father was feeling a bit railroaded and he wanted to have kids and do what normal people did when they got married. And she had no interest in having kids. And my mom is a, is a real Machiavellian type, you yeah. know, <laughs> and, uh, you can, I, I do an interview with both of them on, on the Suck Hour podcast. If you want to hear them tell the story in their own words, it's kind of funny. And he was really, really nagging her to, you know, to have kids. And she was not interested in that. So she timed her menstrual cycle to, so she was pretty convinced that, you know, she knew when she was ovulating and when she was not. And she, she offered herself to him right after her period ended just <laughs> yeah. to get him off her back. Yep. And she's like all right you want to have a kid here's your shot shoot your shot so he's thinking that it wasn't going to take so he took his shot and somehow he must have had the super sperm or she must have made a mistake in calculations because i was conceived and i was born in 1969 in greenwich village and i guess my mother came around to the idea of having a child once once I was once I manifested and so I was raised in the village it was my father my mother and my 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 mother's mother came so I had a doddering Italian grandmother and my mom and my father raising me and then as you know uh the early 1970s were a great time for for pop culture yeah and you know the economy was good and like you know, working people could make money. So I had all the toys I ever wanted. I had all my earliest, I, I, I watched, you know, I watched the moon landing on television. I don't remember it, but there's a photo of me when I'm three months old watching the moon landing on, on TV, which I think is kind of telling that that's like one of that's, that's like where history was when I came into the world, you know, the space age had begun. And it turns out, to, I mean, the space, space sucks now, but at the time <laughs> it was like a time of great I, I, idealism. You know, they talk about this on Mad Men when like when the guy when like what's his name dies, you know, right at that time. And it was a real dividing line, I think, for a lot of people. And it was like the beginning of the new world. So there I was. And also that was the year that Sesame Street came out. And that that was that was some of my earliest memories was watching Sesame Street. I had the biggest crush on Susan. And I was into the Fisher Price little people, you know, yep. the little peg people. Oh, that yeah. was my shit. And I was pampered up and down the block. I was an only child. And we moved to West 11th Street a few blocks away when I was four years old. And then that's when this, you know, I was into Schoolhouse Rock, all the Saturday morning cartoons. This was the, the great apes. I was into the Jackson 5 cartoon. And the main thing that I was really into was the fucking Osmond Brothers. My, 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 I was having a birthday party and my mom went to Crazy Eddie's to buy some records and just like ask the guy like what are kids into these days and she bought the record crazy horses by the uh, the osmond brothers yeah and i was fucking blown off my fucking feet with that shit i mean it was really just like a like a really watered down led zeppelin have you ever heard that song crazy yeah. horses love it i mean i still listen to some of that stuff now i mean it's like it's you know it's sugar it's like bubblegum music but that record had a little some some grit to it yeah and and I, that was my shit. And I had the little guitar and I used to, you know, 
do little shows on my, you know, little stage. I would set up all the stuffed animals and I would, and I would play my little fake guitar and I would lip sync to all the Osmond songs. And this was like what I was into. And then in 1977, this movie named Star Wars came out. Yeah. And, you know, maybe you've heard of it. No large and, Yeah. And everybody was just over the moon about it. You know, it was like an instant, instant. It was, it went from nothing to like all pervasive. Like it seemed like, you know, not everybody was alive or was cognitive, was like aware at this time. But I, but I was, I was, I guess, eight years old at the time. And it was suddenly everywhere, you know, t-shirts, trading cards, fucking magazine covers, everything it was so, it was everywhere. No toys yet, but, and, and I could give a fuck about it. Yeah. I was never that type of person, even when I was a kid, to give a shit about what was popular. I was into what I was into and I was into the Donnie and Marie show. And everyone in school was yammering on about fucking, have you seen Star Wars? Have you seen Star Wars? And I had no interest in it, didn't want to see it, didn't fucking care. And my dear old father forced me to go. I guess for some reason he was just, he just knew that this, every kid needs to see this. That was just yeah. sort of what the, the attitude was. So he dragged me to fucking Los Astor Plaza on Times Square. And, you know, I didn't really want to go. I didn't know what I was getting into. And suddenly from the moment that, it, da, 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 and then the fucking star, as soon as that Star Destroyer passed over, I never thought about fucking Donnie and Marie ever again. <laughs> and I became completely enveloped in this world. My entire personality became Star Wars. And it was useful for me because I was not the most social or outgoing brave kid. You know, I was pampered at home. I was an only child. Uh, and when they put me and I had got everything I wanted when I was home, I even got my ass, literally got my ass wiped whenever yeah. I wanted it. You know, my, my grandmother used to just daughter over me endlessly and I was super soft and I was short and I was quiet and soft-spoken and I didn't do well around other kids very much. You know, they, I found them to be loud and gruff and aggressive and pushy. And I just didn't have the sort of like thick, the thick skin or the outer shell to really like socialize well. So I kind of kept to myself and it may, you know, it was awkward. It was very awkward, but everybody was so obsessed with star Wars. And I just, I was so smart and I had just this like great brain and my parents were so good to me and they bought me everything i read every detail about anything you could possibly know about star wars they took me to star wars time and time again so i could rep recite the movie by memory and then you know that that's what where my social currency came from being yeah. the kid in class that had all the star wars shit that knew everything about star wars i was mr star wars and and that was how i sort of like built myself up <laughs> this is something that i apparently have continued to do into my 50s <laughs> but, but so and that and and that was that was it that 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 was that became my life and then empire strikes back came out in 1980 and i was in 6th grade at the time and my mom pulled me out of school along with like maybe five or six of my other classmates to go see it on the very first day which yeah. would become a tradition. So she, and, and she cut the line. There had been people lining up since four o'clock in the morning outside the movie theater 
to see, can you believe it? Four o'clock in the morning instead of like three months in advance, you know, like they did for the prequels. But we'll get to that in another episode. And and we went and we bought the tickets and we saw Empire Strikes Back. I'd actually got interviewed on TV. The first time I was ever on television is Eyewitness News came around and they were interviewing people outside, you know, the, the theater. And and they stuck the mic in my face and I was boasting. I seen Star Wars 20, 21 and a half times. And and then she, you know, asked me, you know, did you did you think you're going to like this movie? And I'm like, ah, well, I already read the book. I already like I ruined Empire Strikes Back for myself by reading the book and the comic book before I saw the film. I didn't care. And and that and that was that. And this was also about one year after Boba Fett had come out. Yeah. And this was kind of like a real turning point for me because. The holiday special came out in, what was that, 1978, right? And that's, we saw Boba Fett on the cartoon. And then I think it was the year after that, they, uh, they introduced the mail-away figure. Yeah. Now this, this, the, 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 this, the, the cantina, this is when the cantina figures came out. It was so funny because I had all the shit. I had the 12 figures. Mm-hmm. I had the TIE fighter, the X-wing, uh, and the, um, the the land speeder and then they had that like little and then they in, announced all the new shit you know like the jawa that cardboard jawa sand crawler you know and they had the little catalog and they had the little insert that had those pink pages for some reason they had that you know you would buy the x-wing and it had like a little catalog that showed all the other toys those blow up lightsabers and all that other stupid bullshit that they made and then there was an addendum to the catalog where they stapled in uh, uh, an insert that was all pink and it showed all the prototypes of all of all the new shit coming out but wait no wait a minute that that came out that that happened later what happened was i didn't even know about i thought i had all 12 of the fucking figures and that was the end and we used to go to toys r us to just get shit i was into micronauts i was into my, my mom bought me everything she was a fucking saint all the battlestar galactica toys the ones where you shoot the thing that killed that choked the kid that the kid oh, died yeah. from i had those when the missiles still shot and you know, one day, this was such a profound experience because like one day we're going into Toys R Us and like there was no internet and, you know, the commercials were not regular and like you didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know. I was nine years old. And then I go into the, the boys aisle and then suddenly there's like eight new Star Wars figures. Yeah. And it's the weird ones. It's Greedo. It's Hammerhead. It's fucking R5D4, these characters that were just on screen for fucking two seconds. And I was just like, my fucking head exploded seeing that shit just because I didn't know they were going to make it. The ca- that little catalog that came out, that, that came with all the new shit. But I had no idea any of this shit was coming out. And I just like literally like levitated off the ground to like re- to just dr- grab the shit on the fuck from the top of the pegs. and just I almost completely pulled down that shelf of figures on, and Toys R Us just trying to get at those things. And they were $1.97 at the time, if you can fucking believe that. Holy and shit. that's what really, and then to this day, I still have dreams where I'm wandering around in some toy store and then I walk into the aisle and there's like Star Wars figures or figures of things and in my dreams. They don't make any sense, but there's just like new figures and new stuff and just like. We interrupted this broadcast of Toys on Tap to bring you this. Meanwhile, in a galaxy of bootleg treasures. 
DOV2, we have engine failure. We must crash land on DKE Toy Planet. Oh my, we're doomed. Wait, salvation. Hooray, we're saved, DOV2. Limited edition custom artist made action figures and DKE toys. Check out www.dkatoys.com for a full catalog. Hooray for custom action figures. DKE. Somehow, just like being hit in the head with that shit, like that, just that set me, that, that burned in my mind a certain way of looking at things and receiving joy that ultimately became my art practice. Yeah. How quickly did you, when you saw those new figures, how quickly before you had them? Like days? Instantly. Oh, okay. Instantly. <laughs> she just bought them on the spot. I don't know where the fuck she got the money from. Well, no, she was, I don't, I mean, we'll get into the nipple clamp business later, but instantly my mother bought everything for me. I don't know how I had every single, anything that came out related, anything that came out, I got, if yeah. I wanted it, I got it. I mean, stuff was a little cheaper at the time. And I guess, I don't remember when, when did my parents, my parents got divorced in like 19, Right around this time, my parents got divorced around 1977. I was so into Star Wars, I didn't even care about my my parents' divorce. It didn't phase me at all. Looking back at that, was it messy or did it change you a little bit when they got divorced in that time? No, not yeah. at all. It wasn't messy at all. I mean, I guess it was messy between them. Yeah. But they did a good job of not letting that. I don't think it was messy. I mean, I think they were never supposed to be together in the first place. And yeah. I guess they finally realized it. and they maybe stayed together for me but then i guess they perceived that i was fine and my father only moved a few blocks away and it was not acrimonious at all and they remained friends and i didn't it didn't disrupt my life at all you know i mean we had a small apartment anyway and it was like my grandmother lived there and both my parents and me it was too many people so he moved out i saw him all the time it didn't matter it didn't matter at all and but after that what happened was my mother needed to make money and my father wasn't making that much money and he didn't want, he, he was, she was gonna, he didn't really have the money to pay alimony. And so my mother started a business with her girlfriend. You know, she was, she had been dating women the entirety of, of their relationship. He knew he couldn't do anything about it. He yeah. tried to get in on the action here and there. It didn't work out <laughs> for him. He was better off on his own anyway. He had a great time. He fucked so many girls. Yeah. He he he, came, he really came into his own after would after. Just, would you describe it as like an open relationship? They both knew but wouldn't admit it. No, she didn't give a fuck. <laughs> she didn't give a fuck. He just lived with it. Mm -hmm. You know, she did whatever the hell she wanted. She would go out with her friends. I think maybe he just didn't ask any questions, or he he knew what was going on. I don't I don't remember. He didn't seem. I don't I don't really remember what happened to be honest with you. But he he. He didn't get it. He wasn't getting any action and he was happy to have a son. And I've greatly disappointed him before by failing to reproduce, which is something that bothers me, makes me feel bad a lot, you know, that I didn't give my parents any grandkids, but they shouldn't have produced me yeah. and made me this way. If they, if they wanted grandkids, they should have maybe made a couple more just to, of me just to be safe because I was never that type. You know, I'm too... I was like, I'm very much like my mom. I just want to do my own thing. I don't want to have kids. I don't want to grow up. Yeah. My mom was forced into it because she got pregnant. But 
I'm I, I I dodge that bullet. I look at I look at the way my all my friends who are my age that have kids, and I look at all the compromises and sacrifices that they have to make. And I know if I had to do that, it would kill me. It would absolutely kill me. And I also know that if I had kids, I know I have these deep, deep nurturing parental instincts, which thank God are laying dormant. Because if I had a child, I would change so much and I, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing anymore. I would become obsessed with being a father and I would give up. I would probably just not care about any anything else. I'd probably be a over overbearing parent, to be honest with you. So I'm glad I avoided that. Maybe someday a nice lesbian couple will want to take my sperm and yeah. and, and and keep it keep this beautiful <laughs> DNA in the world, and then I can just act this sort of this like sort of remote you know occasional uncle that just shows up from time to time. But you know we'll see. I have to have the I have to have my sperm looked at before I even begin to even consider that as a possibility because I don't even know what my reproductive viability is at this point. But we're getting off the subject. My mother needed a way to make money. And she was dating this woman that lived in Brooklyn Heights. And she was an artist. And they were trying to find, they didn't want to get jobs. They yeah. wanted to like sell, sell shit. They wanted to make and sell shit. And so they started making all these like kitschy things. You know, they would go down to Canal Street and just buy all this bric-a-brac and cobble together these little accessories. Like it was like punk was like coming into fashion, like yeah. punk this, punk that. You know, and like they were trying to cash in on that. So they had like these bandoliers with these little plastic water guns riveted to them and all these, you know, because back in the day on Canal Street, they had all these surplus stores and plastic stores and rubber stores. And you can just go buy all these little bits and pieces and findings and tubes and plexiglass and little plastic shapes and all kinds of junk and, you know, weird shit. So they would just go there and buy shit and cobble things together and then they would go around and try to sell it you know they went to macy's and tried to sell shit there then they went all over the place and they had this thing where they had these two little alligator clips that were attached together by like a chrome chain and i guess the idea with the design was that like oh it's like a chain that you can attach to your leather jacket and move it around it was like that that was what that was what the idea was it was a way to just like a convenient way to take chains and move them around on your clothing and they took them around and they took them to one of the, the stores down down over there in the in the village. You know, there were a lot of sex shops down there. And there was this place that's still there called the Pleasure Chest. And they sold all kinds of like, you know, kinky stuff. And so they showed them all their stuff. And he didn't, the guy there didn't care about any of that except this little chain clamps on the chain. And he's like, oh, nipple clamps. We'll take two gross of these. And my mom looks at her girlfriend and like, what are nipple clamps? <laughs> and then and i guess my mom was the, the smarter one and she was just like you got a deal and and mm -hmm. her friend was like what well what's going on she's like shut up and so what happened was apparently there was this very vibrant subculture of gay men that were into nipple torture yeah and that and that you know there's part of like the snm leather world you know and this is before aids and we're living in greenwich village and like you know, this, these, 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 these people were, were everywhere, you know, and they were very open about it. And it was like, you know, we had, the, they had the proto, the pride parade and all, and everything was like, it was a very gay, gay, the village was truly very gay at the time. And they had the vault, the nightclub, all the S&M clubs, the vault, the hellfire club, and there was the manhole. 
And so like my mom had a basic understanding of what this was. And so she, you know, she read up on it. She bought a couple of the magazines. It was this magazine called Drummer Magazine, which they wound up advertising in, which was, you know, the, a magazine that um, catered to, the, you know, to the people with these proclivities. And I made a lot of toys based on this shit later on in life. But she studied up on it and they figured out how to make these, you know, to, to mass, you know, to manufacture these things. They had, she had a little workspace in Brooklyn and they set up a little workshop where they would buy the clamps, you know, bulk clamps and chain and would cut the chain and attach it with rings and everything like that. And most of the nipple clamps that were out at this time were kind of chintzy and like fly by night, not, not, not very well made. And, you know, they, they wanted to make something a little better than that. And because my father was such a good engineer and because he didn't want to pay alimony, my mom made a deal with them, him. She's like, you help me, you know, mastermind, you know, the perfect nipple clamp yeah, and you're off the hook. So he, so he got involved and none of this interested him at all but he was very good with his hands, very technical, great with tools, you know, and just could figure all this shit out. And they came up with this idea to make the clamps adjustable. Cause you know, you see, you've seen an alligator clamp, right? Yeah. It's just like a spring loaded thing with these jagged teeth on it. You put that on your nipple, it's going to tear it off. Yeah. So what they figured out was they got, they bought these little rubber tips that could slide over the teeth that you had the option to remove them or not. And then the real brilliant thing was, they put a set screw in it. They drilled a little hole in the clamp and then put this little nice little chrome screw, you know, that you could adjust the tension of the jaws. So you yeah. could like put it on very lightly and then you can ratchet up the tension as you go. And, and this was an innovation at the time. And now you look at all the, the nipple clamps that ever anywhere all have this feature. But this was a feature that my father invented and that my mother marketed. So they, they, they're trying to make that, well, they did, and they don't even, like, they don't partake in this stuff. So how are they trying no. to, like, gather what it's supposed to feel like and all that? Well, I mean, you know, it feels like what it feels like. I guess yeah. they tried it on or, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. My mom just is, is a brilliant genius. Yeah. You know, so she was able to just like sort of read a bunch of the magazines and read this, there's this book called the leather man's handbook, which I happen to have here that just like goes deep into the psychological aspects of all this stuff. So she was just able to figure out how to, how to present it and like kind of got what, what the market demanded you know she right. was she understood that what what people wanted from this stuff they wanted classy high-end shit you know like they take this stuff seriously yeah and you know this is their lifestyle this is their identity and so they she was able to figure out how to create this quality stuff and it sold like crazy i mean it blew up. I mean, it paid for all the Star Wars toys I could ever wanted. I mean, they didn't become rich. You know, you couldn't patent this stuff yeah. because like it's, it's considered an assemblage. It's not, you haven't really invented anything new. You're just taking things and putting them together. So that's not really, they tried, they couldn't do it. So everyone else copied them. And like they would have that big part of the business was like outdoing their competitors, you know? Yeah. And that's where like, the branding came from. And I, I think without even really realizing it, how much of my own business was modeled after this, you know, it's like a cottage industry being done in like the home or just like a small studio. 
And it was really all of, and you know, it was like the thing is the thing, but it's the story that you tell around it is what makes it stand out aside from the quality. And like an example of like why my mother was so smart is that she, you know, you're going to, how many nipple clamps can you fucking make without distinguishing them in some way? And so they made these little small ones, tiny little light ones that like could fit under your clothing. And it's like, okay, but why would you need to do that? And the story spun around it. It is called the executive. And what it is, it's a nipple clamp that like guys that are into this stuff could wear under their white collar shirt when they go to their straight job. You know, because, you know, this is the 70s. A lot of people, you know, were still halfway in the closet, you know, like on the weekends or whatever, they would let it all hang out. But you go to your like regular nine to five job. You got to play it straight. Yeah. You kinda, people don't know you're a leather daddy at your job or that you're a, a, a sub or like you like you're into nipple torture. But in order to like maintain that part of yourself while you're, you know, sort of selling out to do the job, you wear these little clamps under your yeah. shirt while you're at the office and nobody knows and and you get to be you and my mom gets to sell nipple clamps and i get to have the millennium falcon so (laughs) you know so that's 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 how that 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 was the environment that i was growing up in and i were i mean i i saw all the magazines i knew everything that was going on i thought it was hilarious and like they she had me in their cutting chain and like you would I would put the screws in the clamps you know you'd have to dip it in a you know you have to lube it up with a little vaseline and screw it in and then she would take me, we would drive across country and she would go visit all, this was all mail order business. You would go into all these different um, stores along the way, like in San Francisco, we went to all the sex shops and she would do business and schmooze with the owner. And I'd be looking at all the porno and all the dildos and everything. And this is all normal to me. And that was the environment that, what? How old are you in this, in this time period? This was probably from when I was about eight to 13 or 14 okay so all this is being awakened and it's almost like a new social currency that's added to your star wars stuff with friends right like you know what dicks and nibble clamps yeah there was a lot of porno around and we were all into that i mean you know my mother was didn't give a shit if i wanted a hustler magazine she bought it for me she didn't care and that's yeah you know this was like i mean the thing is i had like two different groups of friends i had like like I like when I was in school, you know, and everyone was my own age, I was kind of the smallest, shortest kid. I sucked at sports and like I was definitely part of the nerd world, you know, and like I was the king of the nerds, you know, but, you know, and but at home, I had a bunch of kids, friends, like kids that lived in my building and kids around the block that were all a couple of years younger than me. And I could boss them all around and I could do whatever I want. And they did, they played all the games that I wanted to play. And I was the big brain. And I, I came up with all this, the, the shit we would do. And I had a great imagination, you know, all the, and I had all the toys and I had all the stuff, all the kids would come over there and I was the unquestioned leader. And I still like to be that. I still like that role. I still, I do better <laughs> when people just shut up and do what I say than if I have to be like a team player. But anyway, that 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 that's the world the star wars the nipple clamps and everything else that was going on at the time you know i remember my mom had to drag me to go see fucking cheech and chong i didn't want to see that either my mom dragged me to go see cheech and chong in the movie theaters i mean this is new york in the 70s it was different and i and then later on i got into like saturday night fever and shit like that um but back to boba fett 
when 1979, when the mail order figure came out, you know, the mail away for sending the four proofs of purchases from the figure pack, and you can get a free figure of this new villain called Boba Fett. Like, yeah. oh, who the hell is this guy? He just looked so fucking cool. And you didn't know anything about him. And I wish that was still the case. But um, <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Um, and for whatever reason, they released a Halloween costume. This is a year before Empire Strikes Back came out. And they, the Don, was it Don Post? Oh, ben Cooper used to make those shitty little costumes with the little mask with the rubber band. Oh, yeah. And, and then that little like vinyl jumpsuit that had the picture of the character on it. And that was the costume. So my, I got that. And the, the first edition of it, coincidentally, the mask was silver. Boba Fett is green, but for whatever reason, this was that glorious era of Star Wars before everything was like held to these strict standards. Yeah. Like one of my favorite eras of Star Wars is between Empire and, and Star Wars where they didn't realize what a hit that they had. And it wasn't this machine like it is that it became. Mm -hmm. Like they, the, the approval process of doing licensed Star Wars shit was a lot looser. And a lot of shit that didn't make any sense came out. Like you look at those Cantina figures, they don't look anything like. Like Greedo's wearing these like these like turquoise platform boots. Yeah. And and Walrus Man has these flipper feet, and it just they don't make any sense. He's Tamarhead is wearing this this like blue smock. I mean, what the fuck? It doesn't look anything like the characters. And that's my favorite era of Star Wars because so much weird shit came out that they could never make today, and. Um, so I had this silver Boba Fett costume and then I augmented it. I got like little, I made like cardboard knee pads and I put on these like galoshes for the boots and I, and I like wrapped the back of my head in tin foil and I made like, I had that stormtrooper gun and we would go march in the Halloween parade, which is a little parade that used to go through the village. The, the Halloween parade still exists actually. It's like a major to do and it goes down sixth Avenue. But back in the day, it was called the Village Halloween Parade, and it was a smaller affair. And they would walk, you know, block away from my house, and you could just join the parade. So I'd be walking around in the parade with this little Boba Fett costume, feeling big, you know. Mm -hmm. It just made me feel like having the mask on, and just, you know, just nobody knew who I was, and I was, and I thought, you know, I just inhabited this character. So then, for like the Empire came out finally got to see Boba Fett in the movie that was I was disappointed how little of the movie he was in but it had already stuck with me so year after year after year I would just upgrade the costume and it got to the point where I was launching smoke bombs and then like walking through this cloud of smoke <laughs> walking in the parade this is when you can still buy fireworks in, in Chinatown you know my mom used to take me down here over to Mott Street which is where I live now and you'd go in the basement and there'd be this like you know 14 year old chinese kid like yo fireworks fireworks and you'd go in the basement and they'd have it was illegal still but you could you know you buy all the shit buying smoke bombs and we used to you know just like launch them you know problems shooting bottle rockets at each other or firecrackers it's all illegal now but back then you know i mean it's like it was illegal then but they didn't give a fuck now they do and you you know they just have you know they just here's parade here and it's like there's nothing it's like people have those stupid things where you pull it and the confetti shoots out back in the day you used to come down here and you'd be like ankle deep in fucking firecracker spent firecracker shells you know just all the time just fucking anyway so that was it i just the boba fett costume gave me this powers 
okay. that I didn't otherwise have because I was a little fucking nobody. And that that was that, you know, and then whatever, everything, everything, Indiana Jones, fucking Goonies, E.T., Rocky, Jaws, all of it, all of it, all of that shit was coming out. Jaws 2, I saw Jaws 2 before Jaws, and I loved it all. My mother didn't hold back on anything, and I got to do all of it. And then, you know, Return of the Jedi came out. That was fine. And then, and then He-Man, of course. I was obsessed with He-Man. I had Castle Grayskull. I had Attorney. I had all this stuff. We interrupted this broadcast of Toys on Top to bring you this. Earth 2 Kentucky. Aliens have landed. Earthling. I want lowbrow art and bootleg toys. Toys, 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 Well, you come to the right place. Earth to Kentucky is a shop for folks who love vintage sci-fi, lowbrow, and art bootleg toys. Toys, toys, toys. They're located over there at 836 Main Street, Covington, Kentucky. Toys, toys, toys. They carry original art, vintage action figures, designer bootleg toys and toys, 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 and t-shirts. Designed exclusively for their store by some of their favorite artists. Thank you, Earthling. I enjoy Earth to Kentucky. I have all my favorite bootleg art toys. Toys. Hey, look at that over there! It's a spaceship! Yeah. I need to go now. Someone's filming me in my spaceship. Shop now. www.earthtokentucky.com. That's earth2kentucky.com. Or just land your spaceship when they're open. I don't know. At some point, I started to lose interest. I was so immersed in this stuff for so long, and it was so much of my identity, and it was really a golden age of of that of this stuff you know this stuff now that people my age are just constantly revisiting you know people you look at guys and they, their whole artwork is like painting star wars figures in the masters of the universe color schemes you know things yeah. like that i mean it's also interesting to me just how this stuff is just permanently there it's mm-hmm. like the, the you're a, if you were of that generation and even a little little younger that's just the lens that colors the way you look and it colors your aesthetics. It, co- it colors your morality. It, it colors everything. I mean, we were, we were lucky to get all of that shit. I mean, everything now today is so different. I don't even know how it's like, I can't imagine what it's like being that age now. It's so different. This is all we had and it was like enough. You know, also all the fucking GI Joes, all of it. I had all of it. You know, most of it now I've destroyed. I kept it. My mother wouldn't let me throw anything away, which was another great thing. She, my mother had the experience where she got a little older and she had the whole collection of EC comics, the original ones, you know, before that got, before they got banned. And her, my mom was maybe like 13 years old and her mother one day just decided, ah, she doesn't need these anymore. And she just threw them in the trash. One day, my mom goes looking for her old comic books. I was like, Ma, where are the comics? And he's like, well, yeah, I threw them away. You don't need those anymore. And she was devastated, you know? So, like, she would, and she she was insistent that I would not, that wouldn't happen to me, to the point that she wouldn't even let me throw the shit out myself. <laughs> like, I, got, I was like, I don't want this toy anymore. And she was like, yeah. keep it, keep it. I remember when I was, like, in high school, I had this big box of Smurfs. She, I had the Smurf mushroom houses, everything. And we used to babysit this little girl. And I, get, I was 15 and I, gave, I was over this shit at the time and I gave them to her. And my mother was like, oh, don't do it. You couldn't tell me nothing at 15. Yeah. And I gave away all my Smurfs and I fucking regret it. She was right. She was fucking right. And anyway, so I had this fucking store of shit. And when I started making, making my artwork, 
I would always go back to my mom's house and there would just be this vault of just vintage toys that I could just put through the meat grinder and yeah. turn into whatever the fuck it is that I make. So with that, that kind of access to toys and everything you ever wanted, right? So with all the different toy lines, would you look back and see that as an unintentional escape for you growing up? Like, were you trying, did you immerse yourself so heavily in these things, trying to escape from something or was it just pure joy? Oh, who knows? Probably both. I mean, I don't know really what, I mean, yeah, I guess. I mean, I didn't do well. I didn't do that well with other kids. And and as we got older and we started getting into puberty and stuff like that, it got harder. Yeah. Like I just grew up a lot slower than the kids around me. Um, I was, those, those were safe spaces. I mean, granted they were fun and I was like really good, good at playing with shit. You know, like I was very, like, I wouldn't just act out the movie. I came up with my own stories and it would get complicated. I didn't used to just like, I mean, I did bash everything together, but you know, I, I would, I would, I would develop the characters, you know, and I had like narratives going and like, it was just like, I could set up the whole world. I would have like Castle Grayskull and one side of the house and then all the other side would be Snake Mountain and like the whole house would become this world. And my mother didn't give a fuck. She'd sit there and read books and listen to the watch hockey and and we would just tear the fucking place apart and we're the Shogun warriors and we're just like shooting missiles all over the place. We would just like take the mattresses off the bed and like just ride them down the staircase and do anything they it's like i think also in that day like parents were a little a little more hands-off yeah you know we'd just run around and do whatever we'd ride around the corner on our fucking big wheels and stay out all evening and nobody fucking worried about anything and you know we used to bash each other with fucking plastic swords and shields and and, and all that and we, you know of course i had the atari and we would just sit there and we play video games for hours and hours and hours. And nobody ever wondered, is this detrimental <laughs> to kids? I mean, and it was like, I don't know if I, at the time I realized I was escaping from anything, but it was just like, there was nothing else to do. And all this fun shit was right there. So it's like, of course I'm going to get into it. And then they had all the fucking porno on, on the, on the cable. Yeah. You know, they would have like, we used to have the old cable box with the buttons on it. And sometimes my mother would go away for the weekend and leave me home alone. I mean, maybe I was a little older at this time, maybe 12, 13, 14. And like, you know, you would have the, the little box where you press the buttons and, and the cable channels all had letters at the time. And there was this channel J was where all the smut was. Yeah. And like at night they would have the Midnight Blue with Al Goldstein, you know, the publisher of Screw Magazine. And he would just come on and there would be montages of tits and ass. And then he would come on and just talk about all kinds of fucked up shit. He didn't give a shit. I mean, he used to trash Ed Koch and he used to just have porn stars on there and he would smoke cigars. It was just great. You could just watch this on TV, you know, and just talk shit, talk about ass fucking. He would just go in like and just like this is life. You know, there was nothing else to do. And I had my little friends that did whatever I wanted. And we'd sit there and we would like, you know, have the blanket over us and we would all be like jerking off individually. <laughs> you know, we would have, we had the, my father bought me a VCR in like 1980 yeah. and like VHS first came out. He bought a VCR it was this gigantic fucking 
piece of furniture. It must have been like two and a half feet long and was heavy and it had these big massive like analog buttons you know I go chung you know when you press play boom like this big switch and then he bought a camera that went with it like it was like it was like you couldn't take it anywhere they had like a special kind of if you wanted to take the camera you had to buy a special kind of vhs that you would carry around in this big saddle bag so you got this like huge heavy camera in this big bag i didn't have that so we would just set the camera up in the living room, plug it into the VCR and just do shows. And we would just like make up movies and just do plays and just, and it was all just violence and torture and <laughs> bashing things and shooting things with laser guns. And, you know, we'd have the record player and we'd put like the Star Wars soundtrack on and then fight. And there was some attempt at making a story. I still have all of these tapes and someday I'm going to maybe publish it, but there was nothing whatever i was escaping from was worth escaping from because this was great you know every i had everything i wanted and there was no internet yeah so when you uh your mom is in uh making nipple clamps and things looking back do you think that you had witnessed because i know like currently right you've been to the avn awards you are into making You've begun your process into making. Um, yeah. Do you think that you got invited into that environment maybe too early into the porn type worldview? What do you mean by too early? I don't know because it's the years are a little murky there. So it could be between eight and maybe 11. Do you think you're too young for that? No, not at all. I mean, I started looking at Playboy magazine when I was five. Okay. Know, that, that was the first time I ever saw a naked picture of a naked girl as I was at my grandma's house in Brooklyn and her her my grandfather died when I was five and he but you know they didn't all his shit was still there and he had this little stack of playboys and so we would look at that and I instantly knew I knew instantly that I loved it <laughs> and I don't think so I mean to be honest with you I have, I have a pretty healthy attitude towards sex as an adult and I don't, I think, I don't know if my exposure to pornography helped that. I don't feel like damaged at all. Like, I mean, my only hangups about sex was just like, I was worried that girls didn't like me. Yeah. That was the only problem. And it turned out that they did a lot. And unfortunately it took me till later in life to like really accept that. But, um, no, I mean, I have a pretty healthy sex, sexual attitude. And I think, I think, I think withholding that type of stuff from kids is probably more detrimental than like letting them see it. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And it's like, it's, it's an essential part of, 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 of being a human being and our sexual minds are complicated and weird. Yeah. And I feel like I've always been able to deal with the ambiguities of it because I feel like I was very well educated and very just aware of just like the manner in which people express these parts of themselves and you know I'm not a judgmental person at all I'm very open and accepting with people and especially you know in intimate situations like anything goes and I you know people and when I find myself in sexual scenarios of like people people tend to open up with me because of the of the atmosphere that 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 i that i operate in because of that yeah no i don't think it hurt me at all nice
That's good. I think uh, you always hear about the issues that people will bring. They're like, oh, this is damaging or whatever. But it's interesting to hear a different dynamic that it created almost a healthier aspect that you view sex through. Sure. I mean, I don't know if this is true of anybody. I'm only just <laughs> talking about, I mean, I'm just talking about my own personal experience, but also, yeah. you know, I come from a very nurturing family. So there was like all kinds of other factors involved, you know, and that's, I also think just like growing up in New York at that time, you know, you were just exposed to a lot of stuff. And I know a lot of people that I grew up around didn't do well, you know, I mean, and I don't think it was because necessarily because of this pervasive, you know, because of certain pervasive attitudes. You know, I know a lot of kids that were having sex maybe too young and not that having sex per se is bad when you're in your teens. I didn't I didn't lose my virginity till I was 20. But, you know, I know a lot of kids, especially young women that just like started getting involved with older guys and it led to like, you know, drugs and things like that and just like growing up a little too fast and getting into trouble and like sort of like going down going down a path that didn't end up great for them I mean some of the people that I was friends with as kids you know when we got into middle school like I definitely when you say maybe I was escaping it was maybe like I definitely know when we started getting into puberty I did not want to go I remember all my I remember praying to God like I didn't want to I was afraid of having I didn't want to have a wet dream that was a big thing wet dreams <laughs> you know like that was supposed to like you know girls had their period and boys would have their wet dreams I didn't have my first wet dream till I was like in college but I would pray to God please because I knew once I had a wet dream that I was a, that I was that I was that was it that yeah. my that I was going to be a teenager and that all those things were going to have to come up and I was absolutely not prepared for it and I used to pray to God, please don't let me have a wet dream. And he answered my prayers. And I like, I just matured a lot slowly and that slower than all my peers. Like all my friends were losing their virginity and growing tits and, you know, growing pubic hair and, you know, going out and, you know, ha and fucking around. And I was still playing with He-Man toys. I mean, I still had my He-Man toys in like 10th grade. Yeah. You know, I didn't start losing interest in this stuff till around the time the turtles came out. I mean, at some point, it just it I, lo I lost interest. I mean, Star Wars kind of ended in '85. Like Jedi came out in '83, but they were still making toys for it. And then all the Indiana Jones movies were coming out, and like Goonies and Back to the Future. I was really still into that, and then I just somewhere in the first year of high school because i went i was in junior high school for ninth grade that's when i started getting interested in girls but i was such a geek you know that i didn't know what to do with myself and like all the hot sluts you know were already <laughs> you know fucking and dating older guys and giving blowjobs and everything and i was privy to all this information but i wasn't prepared for any of it and but they used to fuck with me you know they used to try like grab my dick and like put their tits in my face and sit on my lap and kiss me and make out with me and i loved it but i always felt like oh this isn't me this isn't for me like oh i'm not uh, you know it's like i just felt like such a i felt like such a, a a baby you know and they were you know i wish i had been just a little bit more savvy because i could have really fucking cleaned up but i just wasn't prepared and another thing was that um i wasn't circumcised so like my father's british 
and they don't circumcise people in Europe. You know, it's an American thing. And there was a question when I was born of like whether or not uh, they were going to circumcise me. And my father didn't want to do it. He was afraid that it would hurt me and he didn't see the need for it. And so as I was growing up, I was just like kind of acutely aware that there was something different about my dick and nobody ever explained it to me. And so I always felt a little weird about that part of my body and always felt a little alienated from it. And I didn't want it, anybody to see it. So when all these like young, you know, girls are coming into their sexuality and all these kids are experimenting with sex and everything, I was like, oh, don't include me in this. You know, like we used to play that game, run, catch and kiss. And I used to <laughs> run and not get caught. The whole point is to get caught and to kiss. And I would never let them catch me. And I would like always resist being included and in all that stuff. And then, you know, it wasn't until like I got into like middle puberty where I was like suddenly realizing, holy shit, I need to catch up here. Like I just remember the turtles was the last thing that I had. Like I had all the He-Mans, I had all the G.I. Joes, and then the turtles started coming out. And I had like Donatello and Michelangelo, Ace Duck, Casey Jones, Shredder and Bebop and Rocksteady. And I didn't want any more. I didn't ask for them anymore. I just didn't want them. What I really wanted was a fucking circumcision. Yeah. You know, and I didn't know how to go about that. Like, I was afraid to ask my parents for all the sexual exposure that I had when it came to my own, you know, around me, all the porn around me, when it came to my own sexuality, I didn't, I felt very awkward about it. You know, I always felt like I was exposed to this stuff, but I was always apart from it. And when I realized like, Hey, I need to start messing around with girls, you know, and I had to get my dick fixed and I had no idea how to go about it. And I would like call, I called up like, uh, there was this place called the door, you know, where they used to give out contraceptives to Mm, underage kids and stuff like that. And I called them up and asked them like, how do I get a circumcision? It's like, Oh, that's a surgical procedure, you know, and you're a minor, you know, you got to ask your parents. And I just could not bring myself to do it. And then one day, thank God, my fucking father just inquired, you know, because I guess when you're when you're when you're uncircumcised, you have to do some kind of some maintenance shit. You know, you have to learn how to roll the skin back and clean underneath it and all that stuff. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was already jerking off like we first time I ever came. Finally, it must have been like 14 or 15. They used to have those phone sex lines. I know we're supposed (laughs) to be talking about action figures here, but this all of this informs my toy practice. Trust me, get back around to it used to have these like nine, seven, six numbers where you dial it. And like for like a, a couple of bucks, they would put on your phone bill and some recording of some woman talking dirty would come on. And I used to like, you know, jerk off in like my pre my uncut days where I would just like sort of rub the foreskin up and down. And then this little would come out and it terrified me, of course, when it first happened. But, you know, once it started happening and I got comfortable with it, you know, I was fine with it. And I was like jerking off three or four times a day to like that, to the like little titty pictures in like National Lampoon magazine and whatever smut my, I, I was able to get. And I had an older friend who used to buy, used to go and buy the magazines and the videotapes and all that shit. We had like Devil and Miss Jones and Debbie Does Dallas and all of those, all those behind the green door, all those classics on tape, on tape. And whenever nobody was around, I would jerk off to them, but I didn't, I knew I wasn't going to show that that foreskin to any of the women that I girls that I knew because I was the only guy in my entire friend group that 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 was uncut and it just seemed that the girls at that time weren't 
were kind of grossed out by that. So finally, my dear old dad asks me about it. And, and I told him in whatever way I could, I want to get a fucking circumcision. And he made it happen. You know, so he took, you know, went to the hospital and you have to be knocked out. And, and they, the, the, the urologist does the bris and, you know, wake up, you know, and I've got, and I look at my dick and it looks like fucking the Frankenstein monster. It's got all these stitches in it and it was all red and swollen. It was just like, Oh my God. And it was like, you know, he was like, don't get an erection for a week. Tell a kid that. You're telling a 16 year old kid, you know, don't get an erection, you know? And so I, I did the best I could because if I got, and I, I went for a couple of days and then I just couldn't stand it. It was like, I got a nut. I got a nut. I got a nut. So I tried to do it as carefully as possible. And I popped one of the stitches and there's still a little scar on the side of my penis from that. And I came, but it was also those, it was and whatever, but it was one of it were those kind of, I know I'm going into vast detail. I'm sorry. No, it was no, one of good. those, one of those type of those stitches that that are made out of like a type of protein and they yeah. sort of just evaporate over time so so it went away and i was finally circumcised and then that was like sort of the beginning of my manhood and it's funny too because i remember i know there's like a lot of like indigenous tribes and like people in africa i remember in roots there was that scene where they take all the boys out into the out with the shaman or yeah. the you know, and they, and when they're of age and they circumcise them, you know, and I remember that scene in the video and I just always sort of identified with that meaning like this is, that was the beginning of my adulthood in a way, like that foreskin was in a way the sort of like protective outer coating of my childhood and my childlike nature. And then, you know, finally having it removed, I was now exposed because I remember, and it's metaphorical in a way because the glands underneath extremely sensitive it took a while before i was even able to really handle it or touch it because it was like raw skin under there because i was never able to roll it back and expose it so it was just like oh i'm exposed now but that's what began my 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 the next phase of my adventures which i guess we'll talk about in the next episode but it was just it was just weird in a way now i don't regret it because in some ways uh when I was a kid, I was like exposed to a lot of adult stuff, but in a lot of ways I was also protected from a lot of it. And I feel like I was able to carry forward certain childlike qualities into my later life because of that. Like all my friends around me were, were in such a rush, rush to grow up and like some instinct within me told me to hold it. Yeah. And, and in, in holding it, I feel like I was able to smuggle it out and, and it's still here with me now. And it's like what informs my work as a, as a 50 year old man, you know, like I never lost any of those gifts. I, I, I think Jimi Hendrix said, and I'm paraphrasing it, like a musician is somebody that hasn't been handled much by the world. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody that somehow carried with them and was able to hold on some of the stuff that comes from the, from the the netherworld that that we live in before we come into this physical place and a lot of keep a lot of people lose it yeah because because of the way the ways of the world just like rough them up and force them to 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 be a certain way and if you can sort of avoid that you 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 hold on to great gifts 
And I feel like somehow I managed that. And then I got into, and then I started getting into high school shit and drugs and all that other stuff. But I feel like that subject matter is things that we're going to talk about in the next chapter. Yeah. I have a question about um, your mom and dad. You, uh, once they split, your dad moves down the street and you're with your mom and you're helping her with um, nipple clamp business and all of that. And you're just traveling around with her. But we didn't talk about much about if you stayed with your dad at times or how often you saw him. Oh, I saw him frequently. In fact, I, maybe the last final story is kind of about that because, um, I mean, yeah, he was very involved and he used to take me into trips. I mean, he took me to California and we went to Disney and Universal Studios right. and all of that stuff. He was, I mean, he was very engaged and he he taught, we had like these giant electric trains that we used to play with. I mean, he was there all the time. But the real interesting thing about my parents is that my father was, is such a genius when it comes to working with his hands and taking things apart. Like he taught me how to use power tools and yeah. build things and hammers and nails and screws. I'm so, I, I'm so natural with all of that stuff. I can take anything apart. I can, whatever comes to my mind, I can figure out how to execute it, how to make it. Whereas, but he's not extremely creative in other ways. You know, he's, I mean, he's a smart spiritual guy, but he's not an artist. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's an engineer. Whereas my mother can't even figure out how to turn the TV on. You know, <laughs> yeah. my mom, my mom can't do anything, but she's so brilliant. She can just, what the, the way her mind works and she can just conceive of anything and just like think to such degrees of abstraction you know, and just like this unfettered imagination, which was also encouraged in me. And sort of both of those two things came together and made it so I can, I'm able to come up with these, anything. I've never suffered creatively. I've never, ever had creative block ever. You know, I can, anything I can imagine just comes to me with ease and I have the skills to be able to execute it. Yeah. At the same time, you know, which is my father's gifts. You know, if I can think of something and then I can take it from my mind and pass it through my hands into the world. And I think I'm fortunate in that regard that my parents were so different in that regard and that they were mature enough and just kind enough and compassionate enough and did love each other enough to, to like not make it weird. Yeah. You know, for me. You know, and they, and they, you know, they, my mom, parents are both still friends. I'm going to see both of them tomorrow. I have to go to my mom's house and help my father redo the floor over there. He's still doing the shit in his fucking eighties. Yeah. That but, is that dynamic. I mean, cause I did not experience it as a kid, but that dynamic where they're still friends and able to co-parent is incredible. But also what is so interesting is you said that your dad had to like he dropped out of uh, high school so all these was, things he got pulled out i mean right yeah so all these things that he picked up with being an electrical engineer and tools and being handy did he just learn that all on his own i don't really remember to be honest with you i mean i think he had natural natural talents and i think when he was in the army he started on that path i guess when we went into the army when he was 18 and he wasn't like necessarily like an, he wasn't like an alpha man. So he wasn't necessarily the guy they were going to give the gun and send to the front line. 
he was more, you know, he was acting, you know, more on the back end and the support side. I don't know exactly what he did. I think he was fiddling around with radios and stuff. Like, I think he was like a radio technician or like he was good at taking, he was just good at that shit. And I think he was groomed for that in the army. And then when he, when he, when he got out of there, they were going to send him to a tool and die shop, which I don't know exactly what he was going to be doing, but that's like, you know, making metal molds and like a factory that makes, make screws or something like that you know or just a a factory that makes nails and i guess you have to have the machinery to make those nails i mean what he did was and there's like actually there's a whole other topic that is informed my my attitude my worldview for good and bad and that's that of class yeah let's you do know that. like both of my parents my mom didn't go to college uh and both coincidentally both of my grandfathers worked for the post office my mom's father were, worked in the post office in Brooklyn. And again, here's the weird, the weird duality. He was this weird introvert. He hated people. He was a germaphobe. You know, so he worked in the back. He would like sort the mail, you know, put it all, you know, when you actually have to, you know, back in the day when the letters would come and you would have to manually look at the zip code and then put it in the right slot. And he would do all the shit in the back end because he didn't want to deal with people. Where, and I have that side to myself, definitely. Yeah. And then there's the my dad's father worked walked the route like he would deliver the mail and he loved to be out there and gossip and get all the news. And he was very social. And I think he actually had a few mistresses on his mail route, you know, and so he would like. But these were like working class jobs, you know, and I guess because my father, you know, because there was there didn't see because of like because of class my father there was no reason for my father to go to high school because it wasn't gonna, there was no need to have a degree he was he was a work he was like poor mm-hmm. he wasn't going to get those kind of jobs you know he wasn't going he wasn't being groomed for you know an executive position or anything like that or an, to be a business owner or anything like that he was going to be a worker and that's that's what the lot that he was born into and he carried with that that with him his whole fucking life you know he worked for this company called SNS and they were a company that made machines that made boxes so like you know they have these big industrial machines that would like you know you'd feed raw cardboard into it mm. and it would chop it and fold it and stamp your company logo on it and these like man these companies like Dole pineapples for example would buy one of these machines and then they those machines would crank out the boxes that they would use to ship out their fucking pineapples yeah. and these boxes would be specifically designed to put pineapples in and it would have Dole's branding printed on it and there was like some guy had to build these fucking machines and maintain these machines and he was that guy. He was like, he was part of like, I guess the executive, he was the executive engineer at this company. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, he was like, of all the brains and all the people that dealt with the money and all the man, all the managers and all the bosses, he was, the, you know, the CEO, the CFO, he was the, the chief engineering officer. And they, in his mind, and maybe it's true, they always kind of looked down on him. You know, because when the machine would break or something would go wrong, they would all be standing around with their thumb in their ass where he could roll up his sleeves and get in there and fix the machine. And to most people with any sense, that person is superior to those people because he actually is smart and has practical knowledge. But in his experience, he always felt that the guy that works with his hands is lesser 
and is looked down upon and works for the guys with the brains and the guys that are come from the the the, exe- the work the, the the sort of more aristocratic I wouldn't say not aristocratic because that doesn't apply in America, but like the sort of more upper class. Like if you were yeah. an executive, you don't work with your hands. You get somebody else to do that for you. You pay someone to do that for you. And he was always so pissed off because he was just as smart as anybody else in the room, if not smarter. But because he didn't go to college and because he worked with his hands. It was always this feeling of inadequacy, you know, or just this feeling of resentment and this feeling of just not being able to get to a certain level because of that. And I think in a lot of ways, I've absorbed that same attitude, you know, and it's like, that's in a way, that's why my work is the way it is. It's like, I was never able to get to the point where I could just like draw a picture and send it off to a toy company and have them make it for me. I got to make it myself with my own yeah. two fucking hands. And on one hand, I think I'm superior because I can do that where all these other assholes, all they can do is make a picture and illustrator where I can actually bring a toy into physical existence by my own, by my own volition. But on the other hand, I think it makes the work seem a little less classy or just like it's some, there's something crude about it or there's something there's something about the work that because it's handmade, it's less than. Yeah. And, and I don't know if this is just a perception or this is just a sort of like resentment or just sort of like, uh, you know, just these sort of feelings of inadequacy or just sort of frustration that people of this class in this class feel, but I definitely feel it. And it's always been hard for me to like think outside of that and see myself as a person that, bossed other people around you know or just had other people do the work i'm the guy that does the work yeah and and it's like i feel in some ways it's a gift and in other ways it's like left me out of things and it's all my it's all happening in my own head the world doesn't really give a fuck the Mm. world will take you at your own estimation of yourself that's that's my belief but you can internalize this stuff and the way you behave and the way you carry yourself and the way you sell yourself comes across and I think some of these resentments just live deep inside of you and they're almost subconscious in a way and they 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 affect how you deal with people and how how people look at you and and I think the and you know my mother doesn't give a shit about any of this stuff but (laughs) you know but it was like I just I definitely feel that this that's a that's a huge part of what colored me you know we never had any money Ever. And that's something I've always struggled with. It's always been the biggest, biggest boogeyman of my wife, life, even more than women is just like the money hustle and the working for the check, the living hand to mouth. You know, I was just never able to cultivate the consciousness to like accumulate wealth. And I think that's like, that's a working class attitude, you know, or just like being a working class person. You don't think about investments. You don't think about growth you don't think about that you think about like how many widgets can i fucking make yeah and and that's where i'm at with the work right now and i haven't figured out how to get out of that crypto bro crypto crypto yeah I great equalizer uh, yeah, crypto is a caste system too in a way yeah and i think that that's such an interesting Way to look, because both your parents, one working with his hands and dealing with that struggle in his own head and his eyes and and people like vocalizing it. And then your mom being this like more bohemian person, like also seen as lesser to some. And so coming from that, I can't imagine you would have any other mentality 
than what you have now. It makes sense. Well, I think in a lot of reason, ways, it's what sort of informed that my sort of supervillain yeah. persona is just like there, it, you do have, there's that disgruntled feeling. And you see that a lot in the comic books, like Cobra Commander and like guys like the Green Goblin and Dr. Doom, all these like sort of, you know, people that know that they're smarter than everybody else because of where they come from and who they are. Yeah. They're not accepted and it turned and they get resentful and they have something to prove, you know, and sometimes if things don't go right and if that feeling is allowed to fester, it, 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 it metastasizes into villainy, which sometimes can be un, unhealthy. Yeah, man, which is, which is dark. And as a side note, uh, the villain of the suck Lord and the villainy that you have created in that, um, and knowing that its representation is like has it, it comes from Boba Fett and all that stuff, and then seeing the show and he doesn't look like a villain anymore, that's disheartening. It, it is. I mean, maybe we're, this is sort of where this whole thing was supposed to end at the last episode. But we'll, we, I guess, since we're on, we'll talk about it. I mean, it is very interesting and weird and kind of amazing, and is to see new Boba Fett shit coming out at this stage of my life. You know, because I feel like I've definitely had my Sarlacc moment and and I have lost my armor and was wandering around the desert, you know, naked for a long time. And that's some of the stuff I feel like happened to me on the TV show. But, you know, after that, but we're talking that's not till episode four, I don't think. But yeah. um, it is it is. It is interesting what trying to watch a super a villain try to reinvent himself as a more benign character and seemingly not to succeed at it like i don't know how i'm i'm a little disappointed with the writing on the show but i'm still giving it a chance but it's just like i can understand why he might want to grow mm -hmm. you know and that how being i i mean i've experienced that like like putting on that mask as a kid and then putting the mask on again when I was entering the toy game, because again, I was entering the toy game from a point of resentment because for years and years and years, I couldn't get anybody to make my toys. Mm -hmm. Everybody from kid robot on down told me to take a hike. And I only started making these toys myself, but with my own hands and under and using a mask because I had to, you know, they forced me to do that. And so, yeah, my early works and even now, came with a healthy attitude of fuck you yeah you know something having something to prove being mad at them you know for not recognizing my genius and and demanding that respect through whatever means necessary but then after a while you know there's diminishing returns there because then you're stuck in that mode and then if you try to grow like you're you're letting go of some of that power and what are you replacing it with like this nice agreeable guy it's like i don't understand you know it's like and how are you going to play the game how are you how are you going to play the crime game how are you going to play the hustle game if you're playing it honestly yeah you know it's just it's these are questions that i'm still trying to unpack but I think we should maybe and just try and even though it's done in a sort of ham-fisted way and I don't even know if they're doing it intentionally it does seem to be playing out on the show in a certain way and I don't know how it's going to go but 
it's just a, it's just really, really fucking as bad as the show is. It's still resonating with me in that in that regard. And I think maybe we'll leave it at that for now and, good. and, and, and pick it up, um, next time. Cause I guess next time we're going to talk about drugs and things like that. Yeah. So, uh, as, which is awesome. I like this as a first episode, do you want to, uh, plug things that you're working on things that you have coming or do you want to leave it with just your stories? No, I mean, you know, I, I, I make things all the time. There's always <laughs> yeah. something to plug. I have a web store supersuckstore.com and there's always something to buy there um i have an only fans there's not much up there right now but i'm going to be adding to that and that's just suck lord on only fans it's 660 a month if you want to watch me fuck a fleshlight and i'm going to put the sex scenes up there later once i get them edited and then i have an open sea where i sell nfts and instagram and twitter suck lord if you want to keep up i post shit all the time and there's like all, um, you know, we'll guess we're going to talk about music and all that stuff later, which are those things are also available. I have a SoundCloud with all my rec with all my old records on there. All of it is all suck it, suck Lord or suckadelic. Yeah. And that's it. I love it. Thank you so much. Thanks. It saved me money having to go to a therapist. Toys on Tap. Next episode. It's great. It's amazing. You're going to want to listen to it. It's not right now, though. You're going to have to wait till the next episode to listen to it. Oh, when's that? The next one. Cool. Toys on Tap. The next one's going to be good, too. So stay tuned and, and, and listen to that. Toys on Tap. Awesome.